Hi, everyone, and welcome to SEDScast, Episode 4. I am your host, Owen Marr, and our guest today is Ryan McClinko. Ryan is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Astronus. Astronus builds small geostationary communication satellites, which can be used to provide internet services to remote areas. They just completed their $90 million Series B funding, and they are set to have their first customer satellite operational within the next year. Ryan was extremely involved with SEDS as an MIT student, and he continues to be involved as an advisor to the SEDS USA Board of Directors. If you want to hear just about Astronus, you can skip to the 24-minute mark. If you are interested in hearing about Ryan's education and other SEDS topics we discuss, you can go ahead and play all the way through. We are thrilled to have him on the show with us. Welcome to SEDScast, Episode 4, Redefining Geo with Ryan McClinko. Welcome to SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me today is Ryan McClinko, who is a co-founder and the CTO at Astronus. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're super glad and super happy you're here today. We're going to talk through a bunch of different stuff. I know you've been really involved with SEDS over the past decade or so, and you've done a bunch of really cool stuff, and now you're working at a very interesting company as one of the co-founders and as kind of the head technical guy there. So, It'll be really fun to talk through some of those experiences and talk about some of the advice you have for current students. So for those of you that don't know Ryan, he is the co-founder of Astronus. Can you just walk us through real quickly what the company is and also kind of how you got there? Yeah, so we're building small, low-cost uh, geostationary telecom satellites. Essentially what that means is that we have, um, traditionally you have kind of sort of big school bus sized spacecraft. And they're built in, in such a way that, that, you know, they take up an entire rocket. Uh, they're incredibly large, incredibly long development timeframes and very expensive. And so uh, we were looking at, well, how are all these companies going about doing remote sensing in a less expensive, faster way? Um, and how can we apply that to telecoms, which has been historically uh, a much larger market in terms of impact, in terms of, of revenues and, and all of that? And can we apply that same approach that's been done in low Earth orbit for um, for remote sensing and apply that to telecoms? And uh, we started running running that down and and found that really we could. And that the good news was that a lot about these you know large school bus sized telecom satellites could actually be split um, into many bits. And that the prohibitive nature there was really just you know if a flight computer. Uh, or an avionics box or something like that costs $5 million and, and is 10 kilograms, then yeah, you can't really, can't really separate things apart. But if um, all those things are much more scalable, then, then that can work out much better for you. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great little summary. So before we get into Astronus and where you're at right now, let's rewind a bit and start off with where you're from, how you got into school and where you went to school, and then how you got involved with SEDS. Yeah, so I grew up uh, kind of up and down the East Coast, uh, originally New Jersey, also lived in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, I would say I had always had an interest in, in you know, building things, and I'm not entirely sure when my interest in space became a thing, but certainly had been that way for, for quite some time. And um, but didn't really do, you know, obviously didn't do necessarily too much on that, aside from, you know, the usual Legos and such. Uh, when I was younger. And then <clears throat> I went to a science and math high school in junior and senior year. And uh, there I joined, uh, joined the first robotics team, 
which is really my first opportunity for doing a whole lot of, you know, actual, like, serious uh, design and, and build. Uh, and so that was a really great experience for me. Um, you know, really like uh, what, what FIRST does and how they, how they do it for, for being able to enable things at a, at a younger age than what typically people will be able to do that. Um, and then um, still, you know, not really a whole lot in space that was accessible to me, to me at that point. And, um, but I, I certainly, I knew that I was interested in, in doing something space related. And uh, I therefore was looking explicitly at aerospace, um, schools that had aerospace degrees and kind of where they stood. And uh, you know, MIT was, you know, ranked top of the list for, for doing that. And so you know, I applied there, applied to a bunch of other places. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up deciding MIT just from, you know, what I'd heard about it and um, that, you know, they were ranked very well for, for the particular field that, that I wanted to do. And when did you first kind of hear about SEDS? So I first heard about SEDS when um, it was the summer before freshman year of college. I was looking around at the different clubs and projects and stuff like that. And um, I saw one, uh, you know, I was looking at all the different options there and I saw SEDS listed as one of the one of the things. And I looked at the website and it's like, oh, wow, this looks this looks really great. Um, and I emailed the, the person who was president of the chapter at the time, Daryl Kane. And uh, he responded back to me basically. I don't remember what he said, but you know, uh, and I was like, "Oh wow, this you know, this must be must be real." And so, um, yeah, joined up with that. You know, probably the second week of of freshman year or something like that, and, and kind of went from there. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people find out about it once they get to school. So that's cool. You found out about it a little early on and were able to get involved. Yeah. Was that like the the main club you were involved with? Were there other project teams or stuff you worked on? I did a lot of different project teams uh, in terms of, I mean, I know that a lot of schools organize things very differently. Um, the way that we did it, I don't know if this is even how they still do it at MIT SEDS, but the way that we had done it was we treated, uh, this was largely what, what you know, Daryl and I had, had chosen to do at the time, uh, was to organize uh, SEDS as this like umbrella organization that would kind of provide support to various different engineering teams, pull them together, help out with recruitment, help with getting fundraising and stuff like that. And, um, you know, would also do various other things like, you know, movie nights and and little like uh, talks and discussions and stuff like that. Um, but would also use, use that to sort of host uh, engineering club activities. And so I did some number of club activities that were SEDS supported, some that, that were not, that were independent, you know, that had otherwise existed. Um, I was also... Also ended up being a member of AIAA, the local AIAA chapter as well. I think it was like junior and senior year of undergrad. I was the, the president of both uh, the MIT SEDS chapter and the uh, AIAA chapter. I would say that the the difference between, you know, there's lots of talk about the difference between AIAA and, and SEDS. And I would say SEDS was much more the industry organization and much more, you know, being you know by students for students certainly much more for the the sort of younger group and and the alumni network being on the younger side of of professionals um, versus AOAA is is a fairly stuffy organization shall we say uh, they've been I mean the the general national national chapter is um, has has not done a good job uh, of of bringing in new blood. Um, and uh, 
you know, you see something different like that at the, at the local branches at schools. Um, but it was very much, I would say, faculty focused. The events that I hosted through AAA were generally things of meeting up with faculty and meeting up with um, various research stuff. So more, more focused on the research and, and academic side of things, whereas SEDS was, I would say, at least for us, much more focused on the industry side of things and the engineering and doing. That's good to hear kind of your compare and contrast on those. That's something we talk about a lot as well as, you know, sometimes we'll work with AIAA on stuff and other stuff, you know, we'll want to do by ourselves. So we kind of go back and forth on that too. But I think that's kind of a similar to what I, you know, similar to what I've experienced. So I was going through an old archive page of the SEDS USA and I saw your name. Were you involved with like the national organization as well or sitting on the board at one point? Yeah. Um, the first thing I jumped in on, um, I think it was probably my freshman year um, that I became the the webmaster, I think. Uh, and then the next year and for the next several years, uh, I was vice chair. And so um, that was that particular position was was really what I really liked because at least at the time, the, the roles for that was interacting with the advisory board and interacting with um, and just sort of like special projects and stuff like that. And so it gives a, gave a pretty wide reach into being able to try out a whole bunch of different things. Um, and so that was pretty exciting. And then one of the things in particular that I did was um, I had run across some documentation about a thing called an endowment fund uh, that had, there was some idea about it. Uh, and I guess somebody had tried doing it, you know, 10 years before I had or something like that. And um, when I talked with, talked with various people about that, uh, including, uh, Peter Diamandis, who was more involved with, I think the first the first patch, uh, first attempt at it, and uh, then was able to get that get that kickstarted, and um, you know work with work with a bunch of people, uh, put together a, a new advisor, a new board for for that board of trustees, um, and then work with a bunch of advisors, including John Getmark, uh, in particular, to to basically be able to get that initial funding in for the endowment fund where. We, the initial funding was like 35k or something like that and the the intent was certainly to kind of keep going from there and, and sort of while I was vice chair I was able to kind of get that in and then uh, the handoff handing that off to, to somebody else uh, ended up being a little bit challenging unfortunately so like, there wasn't too much growth um, kind of from there to when when the Bezos foundation or Bezos donation was made uh, which then you know 10x it yeah, that's something I think a lot of chapters deal with is that continuity and kind of those handoffs can be very challenging. Do you have any advice to, you know, students that lead chapters as to like what does and doesn't work as far as like bringing in the next generation of students? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things that worked out um, were, number one, just being able to prepare leadership early. Uh, I mean, if you're waiting until you're going to be graduating, then it's too late. Uh, like, you start your senior year and you don't have people lined up, it's too late. Um, versus, you know, even if you're, if you're joining as a freshman, then even when you're a sophomore or junior, starting to figure out who are, who are the people that you, that you want to be training to, to get used to that, you know, timelines are just longer when, when it's a part-time activity. And so getting people uh, to build that up, fall tolerance is also good. Uh, but, um, but yeah, identifying people very early, I think is, is very important for that, getting them involved, getting them to have that ownership. So that way they feel, um, like, you know, that's something that's, that's important to them that they will carry on when, when you're not there anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. 
So you are sitting as one of the board of advisors now for SEDS as an alumni. Can you talk about why you're there, why you took that position and what you're working on or like looking to advise on? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I'm doing it essentially because, you know, going through SEDS has provided me with uh, a lot of opportunities, Um, you know, really. I mean, SEDS is one of these organizations, you know, you get you get out what you put into it, as is true for for a lot of things. And between uh, the conference that I ran, uh, between being on the board and talking to a whole bunch of different people, between all the projects that I did, um, gives you a lot of opportunities to connect with people. And so, like, essentially, I think probably all but one of my job offers that I had gotten or anything like that um, had been somehow sets related. And, uh, you know, Brad, Brad Cheatham and I and or Brad Cheatham, Brian Young and I had started uh, a little software little software company uh, that was doing conference management stuff. And, you know, we met through SEDS. John Gedmark and, and I, who started Astronus, uh, met through SEDS. And um, so, you know, there's certainly a lot of the organization that SEDS provides, provides a lot of opportunity there. And uh, I, therefore, however I can, however I can help out and advise people to to keep it that way, but also make it better um, is, is why I, why I'm sitting on, on the board of advisors. Um, as far as what I am intending to do there, I guess it's largely just, you know, to be able to answer questions about what worked and what, what didn't work and try to provide coverage of blind spots or, or things like that. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're really on board because I think that is another sort of issue we have is repeating the same mistakes. I see that at our chapter and it goes back to the continuity. So I'm glad you're there to kind of help remind people what has and hasn't worked in the past. Yeah. So I was uh, scrolling through your LinkedIn, which is basically my life now is going through all the different <laughs> guests LinkedIn to see what they've done. And I was looking at your, your internships and stuff. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that and a little bit about grad school as well. So let's do internships first. You had a couple different ones, it looks like. Can you speak to what you gained out of that and kind of the importance of the internships to you? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, internships are the best thing that you can get to prepare yourself for a job, aside from, you know, working at the job full-time direct. Uh, you get, I mean, at a at a good company, at least, you will get a, an experience that is incredibly similar to what the experience is that you would have at a, at a full-time job. So, um, which is important both from skills development, from a deciding what you like in terms of discipline, deciding what you like in terms of company. Do you like a, do you want to work at a, 30,000 person Boeing type company? Do you want to work at a 7,000 person or SpaceX's type company? Do you want to work at a 100 person uh, Astronus type company? Or do you want to work at a 10 person like super early startup? Um, and you can't possibly know that these sort of things until you go and try and, and work at at least a couple of those different options on the spectrum. You can't know, well, do I actually like mechanical? Do I like electrical? Do I like systems do I like whatever you can't know any of that until you're doing it and guess what uh the class that you're taking in school is nothing like what it's going to be in real life uh unless actually yeah just it's not um so and and you get you can certainly get a lot of flavor of that uh from the projects that you do and I'm strong proponent of doing as many extracurricular design build type things if you're an engineering student as you can uh or or whatever is the the correct analog if you're non-engineering uh but uh, whether you're an engineering student or not, um, going in and doing what you're expecting, what you expect you would be doing at, 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 in the industry 
is the best way that you can develop your skills and learn what actually it is that you want to be doing. And so I think it's, I think you should really be making sure that you are filling up with internships uh, during your different summers and maybe even fellowships or internships in the off season as well. Um, I didn't realize that people did that many internships during, um, during the spring and fall, but apparently that's a thing because we've had quite a number of interns in the spring and fall at Astronus. Um, I was just surprised at how many people are, are open to that sort of thing. That's good. That's very well put. Yeah, I think that is where the, the value of internships come from is that sort of tasting and, and finding what flavor of, you know, the space industry you're most interested in. So the other side I was going to talk about with, you know, education and is the grad school side. So can you talk a little bit about what you were weighing when you decided to do grad school or not? And if you think it paid off? Sure. Um, I have, yeah, I have fairly strong opinions about grad school. Um, or if you can probably just sort of extrapolate from what I already said, um, which is the value in school is around getting uh, a couple things. Number one, getting a core set of fundamentals. And number two, being taught how to think and how to evaluate and how to how to critically how to critically think, I guess, more, more specifically. And if you're in the right environment, you can be taught those sort of things relatively quickly. Four years, maybe less. Uh, and so I don't personally see, I think there's, there's certain fields where I think it is very valuable, but I think in most fields, um, grad school is not the most useful time, most useful way to be spending a couple of years. Um, I did do grad school. Um, I did it at the time cause I figured I would regret not doing it. Uh, I always assumed when I was younger that I would go all the way, grad school, PhD, all of that. Um, by the time that I started taking grad classes later in undergrad, became clear as like, yeah, this is just not going to happen for a PhD at least. And then if I, if I'm financially covered for grad school, I will do it. Otherwise I will get a job was essentially where, where my mind stood on that. And so that's why, why I stuck around it. And then also I stuck around because the, the satellite project that I was doing as my senior capstone, I basically got to keep working on that for grad school. Um, and so there's at least some amount of a continuing to build and do things. But I did internships both both summers that I had before my first year of grad school and between my years of grad school. That was very highly atypical as a grad student. But um, but again, I learned so much more during those three months than I did during the other nine. Uh, so I feel like that was that was pretty critical. So I mean, my my general advice when when I hear about that when people ask me about this is you know if, if there's a specific thing that you really want to study if you are in some deep research thing, maybe you're doing, I don't know, some sort of advanced aerodynamics research or something like that, then uh, getting that additional study, uh, additional research opportunity could be really valuable for you. If not, then um, you should strongly consider whether you're doing grad school because you think that you should or whether there is a specific value uh, to doing so. That's right. It made me feel a little bit better that you said uh, you stayed to do your project because that's kind of why I'm staying is, you know, same thing. We're senior projects spilled over into launching the following year. Uh, so what was the first thing you did after grad school, your, your, your first full time job? Yeah. So my first full time job was I went to go work on Dream Chaser. Uh, so worked for Sierra Nevada Corporation, which um, was was interesting because it's sort of SNC is uh, a fairly traditional defense contractor. Um, but the space systems group were a couple of small space companies that the 
that SNC had had bought just because the owners of SNC like space. And then Dream, and so there's there's like sort of a roguish organization within within SNC. And then Dream Chaser was the like R and D project within that. And so I got you know much more of a R and D small company sort of experience than I would necess- than I would otherwise have had I been at like a different SNC facility. It was it was pretty interesting because then I got to see sort of a, a split between some of the you know large corporate way of doing things, but also get to see some of the fast and be able to build and, and, and make stuff, design, analyze, build, test things on a relatively quick time frame. Um, certainly compared to, to other traditional aerospace projects. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was a great experience to, to learn a lot of, a lot of stuff over, over a few years. Um, and, but by the time I was, by the time I got through three years of that, then yeah, I was looking for looking for something new, um, looking for something a little bit faster. Uh, and that's when I jumped over to Planet. Okay. And can you talk about what you did at Planet a little bit? Yeah. So um, I brought it, I was brought into Planet uh, when I was doing my search, uh, kind of was looking to move to something smaller and faster than SNC. Um, there wasn't quite the same number of uh, kind of out there companies that were building, you know, small air, uh, space companies um, at the time. And so I wasn't actually really sure what I wanted to do. And so I started kind of reaching around, asking around to different people. Hey, what um, what recommendations do you have for me? And uh, one of the friends from school that I reached out to uh, was at Planet. Uh, and uh, it was actually two people that, that I had gone to school with that were at Planet. And so um, one of them actually wrote me a, a really great list of sort of his list of all the companies and, and evaluations of them. And of course, included Planet on that. He was like, if you're interested in and, uh, and talking about planet, you should you should come come interview here, and so um, talk to them about they and they knew me largely as I would guess a, a more generic spacecraft sort of person, rather than my previous three years have been much more mechanical mechanical systems focused, um, and so I came in as as a general spacecraft type person to planet uh, to sort of find problems and debug them. Uh, it was sort of an interesting situation where I was just sort of airdropped in and was maybe once given something to do specifically. And the rest of the time was honestly me just sort of like going and finding problems and fixing them uh, and then getting people to help me fix them and then going and finding more problems, um, which is a pretty cool role. Um, and so the first thing I was doing was was debugging the power system and working with the team to, to improve that uh, ended up going through and then working on a bunch of other stuff, setting up some test setups, uh, redoing the, you know, the, the mechanical system design. Uh, and then as I was just sort of doing more and more of that stuff, about halfway through my time at Planet, the, the company decided to do a, a reorganization uh, within the engineering team. Previously, they had held something that is not uncommon in, uh, in Silicon Valley to say management is, is evil. You shouldn't have management because like, you know, people will figure out their things. Uh, guess what? That doesn't work out super well. Uh, communication blockers are are bad things. Uh, actual management and and providing people structure and organization and guidance uh, is not. And so they realized that you can actually create some structure within the engineering teams that way people a can know what they're supposed to be doing, how it works, how are they doing, um, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, I became mechanical team lead because that made sense. I became electrical team lead because as they put it, 
there wasn't really anybody else who would be good to do that. So they asked me to do that also. Uh, and so that was, that was a really great experience to, you know, have my first experience in learning how to manage, um, and in learning also how to manage something that was outside of my discipline and background on the electrical side. Uh, and so that was great. Um, sort of grew, grew those couple of teams and then, uh, sort of on the side at some point started working on, on Astronus. And when that was ready to, to go font, to go to full time, then jumped over to that. Yeah, that that's cool. That sounds like a really fun job to kind of just be a engineer that's drifting through. I think, uh, anyone who's worked on like an engineering project team kind of thinks it's funny of the, the Silicon Valley kind of fallacy of everyone's just doing their work. Yeah doesn't work well when you're doing complex engineering systems usually. So you said, you know, you started working on Astronus while you were there. How did you go about, you know, starting and not, not that it was a company necessarily at the time, but how did you start doing work kind of outside of work? And when was like the tipping point where you knew, Hey, like this is something that we could actually work on full time and maybe make a company out of. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess for some, for probably a while, um, John and I were meeting on, you know, initially, uh, you know, meet for like, or I guess at, at so, a certain point we decided that it was clear that we both wanted to to start something, we both wanted to be space related and that our our, our interests there were, were aligned. And, um, and so then we essentially did start having like a brainstorming session where we'd meet up for, you know, maybe an hour each week on a Sunday or something like that. And, and, and just sort of plan through it. And then that sort of expanded into maybe a few hours on different Sundays or something like that. Um, and essentially eventually came up with, with some sort of initial idea, which certainly wasn't the final one. We started doing some basic calculations, basic simulation, um, and, you know, analytics on that to see what that would look like. Is that viable? Runs base economics on top of that. Uh, and then, you know, we iterated on that a little bit. And then uh, at a certain point, then you know, we essentially got to something that that looked like, okay, we've done enough of this, like, really rough math and really rough calculations on this, that here's something that seems like it would work. And then talk to various different advisors, both some some spacey type ones, but also investment type ones of like, okay, does this look like this is something that, that we can raise money for? And this is seemed like something that we can actually do. And we had a point where it's, you know, enough of these, okay, we can't, you know, drive a truck through these holes anymore. Uh, then it became clear that the next step was to raise money and start you know, building things for real. And, um, and you can't start raising money if you're not working at it full time. That's just like really bad, uh, really bad imaging. And so, um, and so we, we did that. And fortunately, I was able to line it up in a way, at least for myself, um, that one of the main things that I had been working on previously was because I was leading a couple of those different teams, um, I had sort of led a, a redesign of the, the production build of, of the, the Dove spacecraft. And uh, it just so happened that uh, was able to time these things well, that I was effectively handing off that design from, from the design side over to, to manufacturing uh, team to execute on it. Um, you know, we had built a few prototypes of it. Uh, and so that lined up nicely that it was able to that getting handed off to okay leaving to to start doing astronauts full-time i'm interested to hear more about these like sunday design sessions because i think that's something we do at our chapters we sit down and just throw around ideas so did you go in knowing you wanted to do internet or knowing you wanted to do geospacecraft or did you start from scratch 
And then how do you sort of evaluate that? Yeah, the only things I, I would say the initial constraints were um, were really to start a company that was space related and that would have some sort of like significant impact. And from there, I guess we narrowed out a decent amount, basically saying, okay, the remote sensing space is incredibly saturated. Uh, so we should not do that. Um, and, but if we look at the sort of things that are happening over there, uh, that there's the approach of building smaller versions, less expensive versions, and you're having some reliability at the system level, rather than it all being at the, at the single spacecraft level, then, um, how can we apply that somewhere else? And in particular, all of the, you know, historically, uh, the, the biggest size of the market has been in telecoms and specifically geotelecoms. And so can we apply that uh, approach and apply it to geotelecoms? And why hasn't it done before? And why could we do it now? And the rough evaluation that we had was saying, okay, well, the reason that it hasn't done before is, well, getting the LEO is much easier. You don't have you know, it's less expensive to launch there. You don't have to deal with uh, station keeping. You don't have to deal with quite the same radiation levels. Um, and so it's clear that it's easier. And so that's why it makes sense. They would start doing that first. But can we build on top of all of this, that's all the supply chain, all of the knowledge, all of the talent pool that's building, that's been that's been doing all of that and apply that to, to geotelecoms. And just based on kind of all those different factors of this industry that have been built up, uh, we, we decided that, yes, this is not a thing that could have been done five years ago, um, but could be started now. That's cool to hear that process. I think that's always one of the things that worries me if you have an idea is, oh, why hasn't this been done by a big company yet? And so going through that process and figuring out, you know, is this the right time? Do we have the right amount of money? That sort of stuff is always an interesting sort of process to run through. So where did your first sort of money come from? Did you guys, obviously, when you kind of left planet, you're living on your savings. And then where did you go for money? How long did it take? I know most people have to do a hundred pitches before they can get money. Yeah. Um, I would say that, yeah, definitely most people like that. Um, and yeah, so the good news, the, the thing that one thing that was great was my, my co-founder had been, had, had, had a company before and had also gone through Y Combinator. And so he had a pretty good, uh, you know, network of, of people around, um, investors, people who had previously, you know, done companies and stuff like that. Um, and so, um, as is generally, as is often the case when, when raising your first money, sort of like friends and family kind of almost even precede sort of round, uh, he was able to, to go off and, and talk to some of them and some of them were really excited. And, and that's where we got our initial money in, which was sort of enough for us to, uh, to start, you know, building some prototypes and stuff like that, and then get a little bit more of that in. And yeah, I mean, it's a slow process. And he obviously had to pitch to a lot of people as is, as is always the case. Um, and we were able to get a little bit more in and able to, you know, pay ourselves a little bit uh, and, um, and, you know, have, have health insurance and all that sort of stuff, uh, obviously important. And then that led us through to uh, the, the following spring, where we were then went through YC and then raised a, a larger seed round, uh, which was, you know, for us to to be able to then build the team, build the hardware and all that for, for our demo satellite. Okay, so that was the money that built the first demo satellite? Yeah. Okay, 
Can you give everyone a, a quick overview of like what software-defined radio is and like why that's one of your key technologies? Sure. So a software-defined radio, or back up. So traditionally, the way that telecom spacecraft work is that you have a what's called a vent pipe. Uh, it's called a vent pipe because if you imagine you have a pipe and you bent the pipe uh, to be, you know, like a like a U. And uh, essentially, the reason for that is that you have, let's say, you're having the forward link from the ground from the ground station, sorry, the, the gateway over to the user. Then, if you want to get a message, then you the 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 gateway shoots the message up to the satellite, and the satellite just turns it around and sends it back out to the user on the ground. It's obviously a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, in that, uh, you've got a power amplifier, and the frequencies are different, so you have to mix it, but conceptually, essentially all it is, is that you have uh, a low power amplifier um, uh, on, on the receive side, and then that goes into a mixer that changes the frequency from the uplink band to the downlink band, and then you have a high power amplifier and that shoots it back down to ground. So conceptually, that's how, how spacecraft traditionally operate. So the way that we operate though, and, and the issue is that if you're building things that way, then it's inherently very rigid. Uh, the frequency that you have going up, the frequency that you have going down, uh, have to be set by that 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 particular mixer that can only operate at a certain ratio uh, of those frequencies. And so, if you need to change any of that, you can't. And so, if instead you you have you could use a soft refined radio, which basically you you get the signal up, uh, you amplify it, uh, then you read it through um, an analog to digital converter get it into a computer, uh, and then you do the same thing on the opposite side, digital analog converter out and then high power amplifier. Now you just have all these bits that are in. And if you want to change what frequency, what the relative frequencies are, um, you can choose how they go down, what the ordering is, what the relative power is, kind of all this sort of different stuff. And suddenly you have a much more flexible system. And so the importance of that is sort of a few things. Uh, number one, if you want to change something on orbit, uh, you can do that because um, you know it's just a software change, and that's very important, especially when you're doing. You know, traditionally, a lot of this geotelco has been uh, broadcast applications, which don't change. But if you're doing instead internet, that changes a lot. And so, um, you know, if you're having spacecraft that are lasting 15 years, or even seven years, or five years, then uh, the internet patterns are probably not going to be the same. And so that's sort of like one of the one of the difficulties in, in traditional fallacies on how these how space these telecom spacecraft are traditionally made. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is even if we do know what we want when we're on the ground, then each of the, the traditional spacecraft manufacturers, even though they're theoretically building uh, sort of standardized systems, each spacecraft is a special snowflake because the the front end and the payload are all incredibly customized each particular user because they have to be. And so um, a self-refined radio helps that in that you don't have to have all that custom, you don't have to have as much customized hardware per different different customers. Um, use the same, uh, same receive amplifier, the same transmit amplifier uh, and up and down conversion equipment. And all a lot of the rest of the customization can be done in software on the radio. Okay, so your demo set that went up in, was it 2018? Yes. Okay, so that had software-defined radio. How big of a package is that? What was the mass on that demo? Yeah, so that demo was just a 3U CubeSat. So it's obviously a very different form factor than, than our next spacecraft, the sort of cubic meter 
science spacecraft. And so, you know, certainly the, the capabilities there were, were much less, but it allowed us to put something up that had hardware that was traceable, that um, had software that, that was traceable to what we would be doing, and, and, and also just allows to sort of prove out the, the concept and our ability to create that end-to-end system. Okay, so then, you, so you have this money and you build the demo set, and then after that, you need obviously a lot more money to build these, you know, full-size spacecraft. And so how did you go about securing sort of, what would that be? Was it your Series A that got that, that was that money or no? Uh, yeah, so Series A was essentially to to build that team, build out the team, and then, uh, the B then later to uh, to do the, the development, uh, the rest of the development on that. And um, yeah, I mean, essentially it's a similar, similar-ish, I guess fundamentally similar process to getting the previous money where... Uh, you you go in and you pitch to you know hundred different people and and eventually get a yes or or ideally a few yeses and then you can figure out what it is that you're that you're looking for and uh, yeah I mean it's it's obviously some sort of thing where you need to find a very good mutual fit there uh, you know having somebody to be joining your board and to be really really tied in very closely with you. And um, you know, it was really great for our Series A that we were able to, um, you know, find uh, Andreessen Horowitz and and Martin in particular, who a uh, has a very deep technical understanding, technical background, much more so than most of the Valley, and so really understood stuff and also had a, a deep telecoms background, and so that was that was also great or and background and passion, um, including side projects that he's worked on and stuff like that, and so. Um, you know, it was really good, really good fit that we could find. Uh, and the same thing with, with, with Ben Rock and, and Ethan uh, that we were able to get for, for our Series B and that we've been been fortunate to be able to find some some really great partners there. Awesome. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. I think the two-way street that is, you know, a company finding a VC firm or something, it's, you know, definitely one of those things where you need to have mutual benefits and have to see a connection. So that's good to hear you guys found some really good investors. So when did you decide that Alaska was kind of the first market you might be looking at to bring internet to? Uh, yes, that was, when was that? Um, year and a half ago, I guess. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've been, we've been talking to customers all over the world. Uh, there's not, not necessarily a specific location that we were necessarily expecting to do. Um, and you know, it's really just a, a race to the finish line there. Uh, and that the, uh, the first, the first organization that um, that we were able to get sort of in the books, and um, you know, obviously works out really well because um, you know, very underserved market. It is close to home. That certainly has uh, a lot of convenience to it in terms of less things that we have to deal with. Um, also, it's very our spacecraft is very right sized for them. It doesn't make sense for them to to have a traditional traditional spacecraft that would just be so underutilized. And so if you can put up one one smaller one that it just like makes the business case so much easier. And so yeah, a lot of it was really just a lot of the things fit super well. And so I think that's what what resulted in that being the first one to, to cross the finish line. Okay, so you sort of the, the different criteria and constraints of what you guys are able to do and looked at a bunch of different markets and that was the best fit? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's I don't know. Uh, calling it best fit is maybe a little bit not accurate. I mean, it, it is a very good fit, um, but ultimately, with any of these sales types things, um, 
it's really just what is the the first one to close uh, until you what is the first one that is that is appropriate and a good good match on both sides to close. Um, and there's a you know a lot of others that we're continuing to work with and that will I'm sure get get the next serial numbers of the spacecraft. So, so you guys closed Series B in early this year, right? Uh, correct. Yeah. Okay, so what is, you know, you went out and raised money, obviously, again. Why did you go out and raise more money, and what is that going to be put towards? Yeah, so that's essentially to get the spacecraft to, to orbit. Okay, and you did partial debt, partial equity finance for that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, can you explain to people real quickly, like, what that means and, and why you guys chose for that? Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, this is a fairly non-traditional thing uh, that's been done. And essentially the reason is, you know, we're, when you're doing space stuff, you're doing things that require very large amounts of money, uh, which can then be incredibly dilutive to, you know, your, your equity stake from a financial perspective, from your um, ownership percentage and all that sort of stuff. And the, those dilutions can be pretty brutal, especially if you're doing space type things. And so if you have the opportunity to diversify that a little bit, then that's really great. Now, the thing that we have, the, the great thing about kind of what we're working on is that because we're doing telecoms, the market is very well known. It's not like we're doing remote sensing where you're like, okay, well, we're, we're going to provide pictures at a different resolution, not to, not to pick on planet, but, you know, something that, that I know, um, you know, it was going out and, and segmenting the market, which is a very common thing that's done in Silicon Valley of, you know, there's a market for pictures, but there isn't a market specifically for pictures of this resolution. And so... Um, you know, it's it's much harder to attribute this is the amount that, of money that you'll make if you provide this product. And so that's why debt financing would it would be would have been very difficult uh, for a company such as Planet um, or for any of the other companies that are doing remote sensing. Uh, and also just like fundamentally would be really, really hard for most startups who are going after and either segmenting market, creating a completely new market or something like that. Whereas in telecoms, um, because we're going after a market, but doing it in a slightly different way, that changes the, the math there in that um, you know what the price is. And if you can deliver a certain capacity, you get this certain amount. And so uh, that makes it much easier to do this sort of financing deal. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just curious because I was looking through the Crunchbase or something and I saw that and I thought, wow, that's interesting that they did sort of a half and half. I wonder, you know, why but that fits. Yeah. And so fundamentally, you, the, way that, the way that you look at it is that the debt financing is essentially project financing for all the different projects. And then the equity financing is for the building of the company to do those projects. Okay. So where is the company at right now as far as people and like how you're, how is the company organized in terms of divisions? Yeah, so most of the company is, as you would expect for a company of our size, uh, on the engineering side still. Uh, we've been had some pretty significant growth on the non-engineering side, sort of business operations and supply chain and all of that um, more recently, but the company still is is mostly engineering. Okay, how so do you guys have like suppliers or how much of it are you, you know, designing from scratch versus bringing in pieces and, and putting it together? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we did make a very intentional approach of uh, not trying to do all the things, uh, at least for the first satellite. And um, so that does require us to, you know, a combination of A, 
just how long it would take us to get to market uh, if we had to design all of the things. B, if you know the additional risk of having to design all the things and then prove that all of them are going to work versus getting some heritage hardware in. And so what we ended up doing was essentially saying, okay, so what are the things that we can, where we can buy something that has worked in this environment, will provide this function, and you know isn't going to be an absurd cost or lead time, and will fit on our smaller satellite. And so the good news is that there's actually way more of those things than we initially thought um, that that actually could scale down to systems that are that are not scaled down, but parts of the same, but could work on on a platform that is our size. And so for any of those, we basically did that. And and it's it's really kind of great because there's so many components that that we were able to buy and we're able to sign contracts for with these like major, like huge companies, um, even when we were like a 20 person company. Uh, and it was great to just be able to sell that, sell that vision to them uh, that, that we were able to do that. And um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the components, um, standardized components we, we have bought. And then any of the more customized stuff is stuff that we've developed. And then we'll just continue to evaluate over time uh, the make buy there on what makes sense to, to you know, in-house and improve uh, and what makes sense to continue to, to bring from the same supplier or revalue a different supplier or, or whatever. But you know, one of the key things, again, about us versus necessarily a more traditional supplier is to continue to iterate and improve the system, reducing the cost, improving the performance, reducing the mass, and just kind of constantly iterating on those things. Yeah. So one th- one question I had was obviously a lot of student teams that you know don't have a ton of money. They're buying commercial off the shelf parts for spacecraft or for rockets. If you guys find something you know that works, how do you certify that it will work in space? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a set of environmental testing generally that you need to do, and uh, generally that's some combination of radiation testing, vibration, and thermal testing. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just curious because that's kind of what we have to run through. I think a lot of student teams have that same question of, you know, there's a lot of things we could use, but we don't know if they'll work when they get into orbit. So, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, considering lifetime, you know, if you're putting something up that needs to go up and work for six months, that's also a very different story than if you want something that's going to work, you know, 10 times that. Um, and just what what is your risk posture and all of that. The other thing is if you're a rocket team, uh, then radiation, unless you're spending a lot of time in space, radiation is much less likely to become an issue for you. And so maybe that doesn't matter so much. If you're a satellite satellite team and you're doing a low Earth orbit, uh, not super long duration mission, you can also be less worried uh, about those sort of things. And so you should also be careful to evaluate uh, when does it matter and how much does it matter um, so you don't get yourself you know, stuck into too much of a rut. Um, and the other thing, in addition to testing, is there's a lot of data that's publicly out there and available of testing of different parts that has been done. And so you can actually go out and find a number of components that that have been radiation tested, which has been great for student teams because student teams don't can't afford to go and, and rent a heavy ion facility, um, which is very expensive. So Definitely. So... Kind of going back to your payload now, do you know what the wet mass is going to be approximately? It's a few hundred kilograms. We, we, we know, we, we certainly know uh, very detailed. Yeah, that's fine. And I don't want to make you say anything on the air. And you know who's going to be launching that as well. 
Yeah, we're going to be launching on SpaceX. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so I'm curious for SpaceX launches, how much sort of, like, are they giving you, obviously you have an orbit you need to get into that's fairly precise. And so if if you're ride sharing, how do they kind of handle that? And how easy is it to work with SpaceX to like get a specific orbit? Yeah, so I mean, you know, in general, we're riding as a, as a secondary payload. And uh, we therefore don't get dropped off into necessarily the orbit that we want. And, uh, but that's fine because we've designed our spacecraft to be able to go even from a geostationary transfer orbit to a geostationary orbit, um, basically elliptical out to the circular. And so we have a lot of Delta V capability to do all of that. And, um, you know, part of that is how we get dropped into some orbit and then we get to our final orbit. Okay. That's interesting. That's what I was wondering. Cause I think that's obviously the SpaceX rideshare program is cool. But that's one of the big issues is how do you get into your exact orbit you want? So that makes sense. Okay. And where are you guys on development with that one? Can you say when it might be launching or when it might be complete? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're working on, on the qualification efforts right now. Um, I can see some amount of updates of that on our, on our Twitter, um, kind of what we're, what we're doing there. And you know, a little while ago, we posted a picture of, of the quality of coming together. Uh, and all the testing we've been doing on that, what we've been doing on various other, um, various other units as well, and yeah, looking to be, um, yeah, getting the flight together, flight vehicle together soon. Awesome. So we were talking earlier about you know Starlink a little bit, and we were talking about that's not direct competition. Are there any companies that are you know sort of direct competition to what you're trying to do? Not direct. Um, honestly, the closest would be um, Saturn. Um, which the nation sat program, um, but even that is going after a, a somewhat different, uh, a little bit of a different market specifically than what we're doing. So in terms of super direct competition, there, there really aren't any that we're currently aware of. Okay. Well, that's good for you. That's the nice thing about moving into a market that doesn't exist is you hopefully don't have competition, at least at the start. Sure. And, and even when that does come up, it's a pretty massive market. So Definitely. Uh, so I'm going to move on to a couple of the student questions that we had written up. Uh, the first one was about, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was talking about how you grow a company, especially if you guys have a technical background. What are some of the most important business lessons you learned in growing a company? Yeah. Um, by business lessons, does that mean like organizational or on the... I think it was, how, how did you organize that? And also like, how did, did you bring in like business focused people? Obviously your co-founder has experience with the previous company, but like how much of the business were you guys running early on versus now? And, and what did you kind of learn? Because you're kind of obviously going from technical to being thrust into like a position where you have technical and, you know, business and people's jobs are at stake. Yeah, certainly. I am, you know, I'd say a lot of it was just being able to reach out to uh, well, a just kind of learning a lot of these things uh, and just sort of learning by doing, but also just reaching out to a lot of advisors. And we've always been really big on finding advisors, both on the technical side, but also on the organizational side. And you know, uh, organizations like YC can certainly be very helpful for that. A lot of our uh, seed advisors could be super and another and, and a lot of our investors could be super helpful on, on a lot of those areas. We we have a pretty deep network through through kind of all of those. Um, and then there's other co-founders um, that we knew through various networks. So um, really just getting a lot of advice from from a lot of different people has been pretty critical for that. 
And then that was sort of, I think, sort of a lot of the big thing for early on. I mean, we're still doing that. But then uh, coming in later was then yeah, bringing in senior experienced people on sales, BD side, uh, on, on finance and on, on company operations. And, you know, you don't do that when you're super small, but then as you're scaling up, then, then you start pulling in those senior experienced people. So another question here is about leading engineering teams. And this person's asking if you could just kind of go through some of the things that you found to either A, work really well, or B, not work well when you're dealing with leading a team of engineers on a project? Yeah, um, I would say that some of the things, especially as you're going to a somewhat larger organization, uh, a lot of it comes down to expectation setting, communication, and, and a lot of that, where generally things go wrong because people are not on the same page. Um, usually because there's just some sort of interface, but that's purely a technical interface that, that, a, that a pinout got you know, mixed up or a bolt pattern got mixed up, or it's just that people's approach to something is completely different. And then you have to figure that and you don't even realize that until later. From what I've seen, a lot of things that have either gone great or have gone um, not great have been largely down to not having appropriate communication, whether that communication is people talking to each other or whether that communication is lack of documentation or whatever. There's a million different ways that you can sort of, uh, that are many different vectors of communication. But that I would say is probably the biggest thing. Um, just yeah, being very clear about kind of all those different things. Okay, very good. Uh, one question I had, and I think this applies to a lot of you know SEDS people that are leaders on projects, was you're going from this environment in school where you're sort of the lead on the project and you have some level of autonomy, but you know, you're really in charge of what's going on. And then you might jump into a company. You know, we talked about Boeing, where it's thirty thousand people. How can you still like be a leader and be involved and show that you're, you know, want to be a leader in the future? I know, obviously, you need to earn your keep when you're jumping into a company, but how do you kind of demonstrate that you have the capability to lead? Yeah, that's the question. So the secret um, that I think fresh people who are fresh out uh, don't realize, and I certainly didn't realize, is that there is always a lack of leadership and leadership potential. Um, they're like, you always need as, as a leader of a company or a leader of a team, you're always looking for people who are willing to take on more responsibility, take on more leadership. Um, because just again, all the, the ownership, the communication, all this sort of stuff you always, you can always use more of, uh, just like one of these things is sort of like unbounded good. Um, and so from that perspective, even if you are a complete fresh out new hire, um, there are plenty of opportunities where you can take on different things and that can be super valuable. And there's honestly like a couple of strategies there. Number one is just, uh, you can, you can imagine when you're doing something, you know, if, you, if your task is to design this widget that you can figure out what are the next steps. Like maybe you were told to, to do the, the SolidWorks design on this thing, but you can probably you know, if you've led stuff on your student teams, you probably have an idea of what's coming up next. And you can sort of lean forward on that, um, lean forward on some of the documentation, interface, connecting with other teams, stuff like that. Um, and so there's generally quite a bit that you can do there to, you know, show by doing that, that you're really looking to, to move up on that, where uh, generally it just means sort of flexing what is the specific bit that is 
your job um, to what is beyond that. And the second part is also just by asking and saying, hey, I want to learn X other things, or I want to to be in such leadership position and um, talk to your manager, talk to other people at the company about that. And uh, generally speaking, these are certainly if you're at a uh, small, fast growing company, then these people will always be looking for help on all of that and uh, would be more than happy to find things for you to do that help you to exercise that. Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. So a related question to that was someone was asking about um, basically how you guys picked your team early on and where you where you go. They asked about the past, but I guess also now, where do you look when you're like trying to bring new people on board and what do you look for? Yeah, um, I would say that our for our super early team, uh, we were looking for relatively, relatively experienced people um, just because, you know, we had a whole bunch of different disciplines that we had to fill out. And so um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't necessarily afford to be working with with fresh outs for all those different things. Um, however, as soon as we had like one person per discipline, that's that's when we were, you know, looking for people of kind of all different all different experience levels to to continue to grow the team, which is certainly what we've done, and that we've got pretty wide range of experience levels across all the different parts of the company now. And so, as far as how we're looking for people, um, it's honestly pretty pretty wide range. Um, we get a decent number of people in from, from recommendations, just people who know people. Um, we get a lot of people in from just applying to the website and, uh, a lot through some more directed recruitment efforts of sending things out on, on LinkedIn of targeting keywords and and things like that. And so it's a, it's a, it's a pretty wide range of, of what those look like, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, that definitely answers it. I think it's always interesting to hear how people build their team at the start. And then hopefully by now you guys have someone that helps you do the interviews. So you're not bogged down in all of it, but uh, that's awesome to hear. So you guys are based in around San Francisco right now. Do you guys plan to stay there or are you thinking there's other opportunities? I mean, we'll stay in the area. We'll see right now we're in South of market uh, district um, in inside San Francisco. Uh, maybe it makes sense in the future to move to, somewhere SF adjacent, um, rather than being downtown, but honestly, we'll, we'll just have to see what, um, what the real estate options look like, uh, in terms of what we need for our next office. Definitely. And do you guys have a plan? So you're at about a hundred people right now. Do you have a, a plan as far as how you go about hiring people? Is it dependent on how many contracts you get for satellites or? Depends on a lot of things. Uh, yeah, it depends on, Certainly depends on how many spacecraft we're building at what time frames, how different those spacecraft are, how much we're positioning for scaling, or, you know, certainly depends on a lot of things. Okay. Can you walk us through kind of the financial model of how it works once the satellite's up there, as far as, you know, who's paying, what sort of equipment do they need to use the satellites, that sort of stuff? Yeah. So I can I can speak to our, our first one, which is, I think, very representative, which essentially is that um, we... It's essentially as a lease model where we provide the spacecraft and then um, and then we lease that spacecraft to to our customer in Alaska. And so um, and then our customer in Alaska is the is the one who interfaces directly with the end users. And so they they procure the dishes that they go and put dishes on people's roofs when 
the dish gets damaged, then they go out and repair it, diagnose and repair it. And so if you're a person in Alaska, essentially what you would do, how that stream would look like is that um, you would talk to you would talk to our customer about getting a dish put up and then they would go put the dish out and then do that sort of customer facing activity and then um, and charge you know for service and then, then we charge them for um, for that bulk capacity. Gotcha. And is your Alaska customer is that an existing? internet company or is that a new company that's kind of doing this based on the fact that you're building a spacecraft? Uh, no, they've actually been around for a while. Um, okay. A combination of some terrestrial stuff and some just like absurd price uh, for what a very limited amount of capacity has been looking like lately. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing because I'm up in northern Michigan right now and it's a similar thing where your options are either terrible internet or no internet. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's cool to hear it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is an amazing amount of people. And I think a lot of, especially college students take it for granted because we go to universities where there's, you know, gigabit internet and a lot, a lot of the world doesn't have it. So that's awesome to hear. Okay. The last question we always do is your advice to said students and kind of the key takeaways today. So kind of just give us, you know, any last advice you have for students that are, uh, you know, in university right now and sort of also what your advice is as far as, you know, starting to look for jobs and internships and what they should be looking to do as they enter the workforce. Yeah. Um, my general advice is to proactively do, which is a thing that's sort of come up a, a bunch of different times during, um, during a conversation here. And so if I had to summarize that together. Yeah. Proactively do things. And um, if you're an engineer, that means building things. And that means designing things, building things, testing them, doing the whole thing not just like doing CAD, but like building and testing it. Um, and, you know, but no matter what your discipline, there's some version of do that you should be doing and practicing and operating that. Uh, you should also be, you know, learning your fundamentals and learning how to think properly for, for the academic side of things. But, you know, that part you're required to do to get your degree. And so that part generally happens. Um, the thing that is not required to get your degree is to actually learn how to do things, sadly. Uh, and ironically, but so that, that's the main thing that I, that I like to push is because, uh, the amount of actual doing that is required to get degrees is not enforced necessarily, uh, that, that, that's, uh, sort of an emphasis that, um, needs to be pushed to students. And that just helps you out so much. If you've, if you've actually done things, um, uh, and, you know, to speak less, less vaguely, you know, cause it's engineering side, if you've built projects and, and you've shown that you've been able to work through that and solve hard problems, uh, then that's just so much less risky for a company to say, oh, this person can actually apply their schoolwork and do a thing for us. And that makes you look so much more attractive uh, from a recruitment perspective. Definitely. All right. Any other last words? Um, I guess I guess I didn't actually state the proactive part, but that sort of gets back to the, the leadership and, and all that side, which is, you know, uh, there's whatever's the minimum is, uh, but, and just like getting by with doing what you would dress to do. But if you can always be looking for, um, new ways to, to kind of go beyond on that, then that, that's also a thing that, that really stands out. Perfect. All right. That wraps up this episode. I want to thank Ryan for joining us and we will see you guys next episode. Thanks for having me.